what is trauma in general? And I always look at it as like something that literally shakes, if not rips your identity, either quickly or insidiously. Both of those are valid. (laughs) And now when I say, okay, so religious trauma, what would that look like? And I'd say, okay, what would be more shaking if you were literally embedded into a religion and then said, all of a sudden you woke up and you're like, wait, that's not me. That's my mom's identity. Or that's not me. That's my grandma's identity. Oh, shoot. Now I'm all of my friends are this religion. All of my family does this. Like, what do I do? And now you feel like you're stuck between your own identity formation and your group identity formation, right? And that's where this trauma comes in. My next guest is Jamie Mailer. She's a licensed therapist, a podcast host, a content creator who specializes in helping people unlearn people-pleasing, overcoming toxic relationships, and generational trauma. So Jamie, we were just talking a lot about your background, and I know that um, part of what really intrigues me is you talk about religious trauma. And I think that's such an intriguing topic because it's very real. I think that it's something that's not talked about. I know I've had a lot of clients that have come to me. I've struggled myself between my spirituality versus the box of the society norms of what religion is supposed to be. So tell me a little bit about your background. Where did you grow up? How did you grow up? And I know you talked a little bit about how you've had some history with your religion and some of your struggles. I'd love to hear about that. Yeah, so I have an interesting story. So I grew up in a very culturally Catholic and devoted Catholic family. My maternal line is like very Catholic. There's a lot of Catholicism in my family. So that was kind of like a cultural thing. Like this is just expected to be you know, the religion that you have. And my dad was like super, super devoted. I remember I have memories of him like every single day reading the Bible. I have memories of us like kneeling in front of Mary, like praying. And, you know, I know there's this whole thing about Mary, but like, it's just we were devoted. That's what we did. We we would just pray a lot. He would be super devoted. He was like the leader of the family, go to church all the time. My mom would lead like you know, children's liturgies, which is basically the children's program constantly. And to this day, they're involved, you know, to this day, they're involved. Um, My dad, that's another story, but my dad suddenly died when I was little. And then my mom got remarried to another man that was Catholic. And now he's actually like, in the church, we have like holy orders, which is like, there's the priest, but then there's the deacon, which is like, it's not quite a priest, but it's, you know, a like step level down from a priest, um, but they're, they're able to lead liturgy. Like they can do funerals. They can do a lot of the similar things that priests can do. They're just kind of a subset division of, you know, the holy order. And so he actually went through my stepfather to this day and in this week is probably leading a service. So he's very much still in the Catholic faith. My mom is still very much in the Catholic faith. And so getting raised in that, you know, even through losing my dad, like we stayed still going to like every, you know, nothing shook that like, that was like the staple, like we went to church, it was expected, we had to do all of the services, like I had to go to um, in Catholicism, there's Eucharistic, you're getting your first communion, you're getting, you know, confirmed, you're gonna get married in the church, like all of these expectations. And I think a lot of people hear Catholicism, and they think, oh, you know, like, I, I know a lot of Catholics, like, they're not, they're not that extreme. But 
what I was speaking to before we kind of started was this idea of the tricky part of like religious trauma is that I can't really say it's just in one religion. It can be more prominent in one religion, but I can't really say it's just in one religion because what happens in certain religious ideologies is just like, I kind of compare it to like political groups, right? We have the we have the conservatives, we have the liberals, we have all of the people. And then we have like subdivisions of those people that are like so far left and so far right. And then you hear them and you're like, oh, I thought I was similar to you. But when you're talking, I'm like, wait a second. I don't I don't think we actually like adhere to the same thing. And that's what I try to explain to people happens in religion is that we have these huge collection of groups, these archetypes, you know, these huge like uh covering cloud covers of like religion groups right and then we have these subdivisions of people and that's like the sociological system that slowly might de- i don't even want to say deviate but they they almost like create another that's why i say like a subdivision of the faith because their beliefs become so refined or so fundamental or so orthodox or whatever we're going to call it that it becomes like we say, oh, we're Catholic, but it becomes like another, like it almost needs to be framed in another way. And do I dare say it leans to kind of cult mentality? Yes, but we wouldn't ever, like I would never have said that. I'm, oh my God, no, I'm not in a cult. I, I'm Catholic. Like everybody's Catholic, right? Like obviously not everybody is, but, right. but like, you know, everybody knows a Catholic, like no one's like, you know, mind manipulated and stuff. But what ended up happening was that was my priming. That was my foundation. And then where that subdivision group came from was actually me going to a very radically like very very refined catholic institution like it was a catholic university but it was into this day it's known for being so basically catholics only you don't go here if you're catholic and if you are it's an outlier and we would know the people that weren't catholic on campus i'm serious like it was just so like I don't even know the right word it was it was so I want to say like everyone was othered and we were the group you know what I mean like the world is out there and we are the real Catholics you know but that's kind of where the journey led up to so side note did you guys know that I'm not only a therapist but I'm also a professional tarot reader it's not exactly me hovering over a crystal ball telling your future It's a tool to connect with your guides and your higher self to help you in certain areas of your life. Tarot genuinely changed my life and it can potentially change yours too. Click on the link in this podcast for more info. Okay, back to the podcast. I find that interesting because it almost reminds me of like this 16th century way of thinking of, you know, back when you had the monarchy and you had, you know, Catholicism, that was essentially, that was it. And Mm -hmm. when, for those that know their history or, you know, quick history lesson, when King Henry VIII was, was the monarch and he decided, well, I want to marry my mistress. So I'm going to split from the Catholic church and we're going to be Protestants and the Protestants are going to, are going to split. And that was a big deal. So it, 
even though we're 2022, it's you you do still have these like really strict religious mindsets and no one thinks that this can be trauma related. So what is the connection with religion right. and trauma? Because for someone listening right now, that's like, yeah, that's me. That was me growing up. And maybe they don't quite understand the connection that trauma can have with religion. How do you define that? How do you say that, okay, right. there is a connection between trauma and religion or there can be? Right. I actually want to preface this because my story is a little bit different than probably the, like a very more generalized collective trauma that comes from religion. Um, I found myself in a very, very cult-like mentality. That does not always occur in religious trauma. It can. It can where you feel like, oh, I was part of a group and then I was othered. But that can honestly happen not in a cult mentality religion. Like it's basically it's the structure pick any religion, right? If I became, you know, um, I don't know, I, I, I'm literally trying to make if I became like pre- Presbyterian right now, right? And I started going to the services. Part of the sociological group is you're going to meet people, you're going to go out to dinner, you're going to create besties, you're going to get friends with the pastor, you're going to have like parties, like, you're sociologically embedded in a society, right? And so the more attuned you are to that society and the more you're like, oh yeah, your beliefs are my beliefs, right? That makes sense for me. You're going to become more adhered. And actually what we don't realize is the children developing into young adults, developing into full adults, that's part of their identity formation. And if, you know, we're both, you know, we're, we're both psychotherapists, we both understand identity formation is happening consistently throughout all stages of our development. And especially when we're children into like the teenage young adults to like our full on adulthood, when we have identity formation bound to religious formation, it is why I try to explain to people religious trauma does deserve to be kind of refined as its own topic is because I always look at trauma as things that shake identity. That's how I always vision trauma. And that's why complex trauma can shake your identity in an insidious way, right? You're like, oh, maybe I need to lay boundaries. Yeah, because you never saw that you needed to, right? Which the complex trauma is a whole nother story, but it's this concept of what is trauma in general? And I always look at it as like something that literally shakes, if not rips your identity, either quickly or insidiously. Both of those are valid. (laughs) And now when I say, okay, so religious trauma, what would that look like? And I'd say, okay, what would be more shaking if you were literally embedded into a religion and then said, all of a sudden you woke up and you're like, wait, that's not me. That's my mom's identity. Or that's not me. That's my grandma's identity. Oh, shoot. Now I'm, all of my friends are this religion. All of my family does this. Like, what do I do? And now you feel like you're stuck between your own identity formation and your group identity formation, right? And that's where this trauma comes in. So I did want to preface, mine was a little extreme just because it it became very, very rigid thinking, very, very extreme thinking. It doesn't have to be though. It can just be, I was formed in like, I I had a pretty, you know, I hear a lot of this. I I had a really decent childhood. Like I have some good memories at church. And then they'll talk about things that really were like kickers. A lot of sexual identity formation, a lot of relationship identity formation, a lot of gender identity formation. And I don't, I just, I don't mean like, do I identify as a woman? I literally mean like, 
how do you identify your role, your construct of your energy, right? So feminine energy, masculine energy, like, are you allowed to work outside the home? I don't mean, are you going to get 50 lashes if you work outside the home? Are you going to get low-key, insidious, oh, um, don't you have young babies? That's powerful. This is what I'm talking about. It's like those small little sociological constructs that slowly, oh, maybe I'm wrong because my whole social construct says that I basically is telling me like I'm kind of a bad mom right now. So maybe I'll just stay at home, right? And I go, okay, so now we're talking about your identity versus the group identity. And when you get convicted that, oh no, there is no way I am not going to let, I'm not going to let mom's groups judge me for working outside this home. Like I'm not going to do that. And you put your foot down and you realize you walk into that room with no shame and you walk into it like, absolutely. Like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. This is like, I, I I'm thriving. I love it. I, I think my kid is thriving. I'm thriving. Like whatever, you know, what you're going to get is you're going to get some distance. You're going to get some of that low key. Oh, but you know, mothers like belong in the home though. Like really, you know, is that, is that really what we're going to do? You know? And then what we're really looking at is what do you do there? Because I don't say you have to leave the religion, but we are looking at structures that happen inside of religious like ideology that might not actually happen. I mean, it can happen, but it might not be as pressured in the general construct of psychology and your interactions with the like anthropological world, like all of the people that you're interacting with, right? So it's like, okay, so we have, we have your group, your religious group. And then I think about every time I never really felt judged, it was like when I talked to people who weren't like, not weren't religious, but they weren't part of my religion. So I'd be like, oh yeah, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, trying to not have kids right away because I got married super young. And they'd be like, oh, cool. Like, yeah, that's totally fine, right? And then I would say something like that in my religious group and they'd be like, mm, I mean, like, but a part of marriage is like being fruitful. It's just, you know what I Like, so do you see how like that, those are two different, am I allowed to be autonomous? Am I not allowed to be autonomous? And like one of it adheres to your religious beliefs and the other one doesn't. So then what I hear a lot of, and this is a lot of the trauma that comes in, is they feel as though, this is what happened in my case, they feel as though they have to choose between their autonomy and their belief in God. And that's mm-hmm. where I always say it's really sad because it became very all or nothing, right? Where I actually felt like to become a fully autonomous human being, I had to walk away from something I valued, which for so many listeners who are like, that's where I'm at. I want you to understand like, this is where the trauma really, really can get like deep because we can have society like the the religious society like in your in your in your community basically saying oh yeah but that that is true oh you want to be you want to say you're bisexual oh well I don't know what God thinks about that and you're like well I don't I don't know what I'm supposed to do now right like what am I supposed to do and so you basically are feeling like do I choose God or do I choose my own autonomy am I selfish for choosing my own autonomy am I right and so there's so much here that I just don't think people have unpacked, right? There's just like a lot of things that people are just like, oh yeah, I guess that's true. You know, I guess God would judge me if I went off on my own and did my own thing. And that's where I like to speak to people and say, you know, when people speak to you in all or nothings, I always, I don't want to say it's foolproof, but all or nothing thinking is 
not a healthy psychological system to kind of adhere to. And I heard it all the time in my religious upbringing. Like, oh, you want to do this? Well, you'll go to hell. Oh, you want to um, explore, like ask some questions. Oh, well, um, that's that means you're having an impure mind. And I'm like, but I, but I have like a question and like sexual, well, well, you're obviously thinking about sex then, you know, you're too young to think about that. Right. It's like, I'm just saying, like, I'm giving examples. These aren't real. Like these are, these are just my examples of like how this can happen. But genuinely, how well or nothing is that? You're like, but I have, I'm just trying to understand how to be a human being. Like, I just want to know stuff about my body. And they're like, well, obviously you are like just spiraling down into the pits of hell. And you're like. Oh God, you know, like, and you're like a, at this point, this is why I try to explain to people, identity formation is so interesting because if you're asking these questions when you're in puberty and like, you're like 12, 13, 14, whatever, and you're genuinely just trying to get a straightforward answer. And they're basically saying, Oh, anytime we talk about this, you're basically like riding the line between a sin because in theory, you're kind of having these impure thoughts and like, this is where your purity comes in and all of the purity culture is this whole other thing. But now you're basically like, oh, that's all or nothing. That I can't even touch that without it being like a problem in my faith system. So now I have to do that like in secret. Mm-hmm. Now I have to think about those things in my own way. And this is actually like, it's pretty powerful stuff here because if you're doing your own like sexual identity formation and you don't have any like mm-hmm. real information, we can have some really messed up envisionings of like, what we believe about women and what we believe about men and what our role and what our power is and what our where our power comes from, right? Ooh, like there's some serious deep stuff there. It reminds me of two things. Everything that you said is so profound. And I think of two things that come up during this conversation. One of them being the LGBTQ community and how some people and some individuals, I've had a lot of friends, a lot of clients who have struggled with their sexual identity and their religion of what they were raised to say, well, my religion, or at least my, my pact in within my religious group said that you shouldn't be this way. I need to be X, Y, and Z. So I struggled with my sexual identity until I completely you know, just eradicated myself from my religious church or my group or my Mm -hmm. family, even my family disowned me, you know, and of course, we're talking about on the extreme ends, I'm not saying that every church is like this, or every religion is like this. I think it really depends on your pact, their belief system, how they view the world. And the trauma that has to come with trying to figure out your own sexual identity by yourself with no support, no education is mind boggling to me. I don't know if you've seen the new Netflix show that came out. It's called Eat, Pray, Obey, I believe, or something, Pray, Obey, something like that. It's about the polyamorous or the polygamous group that was oh, called the, okay. the, fun, the fundamentalists. And I did think I saw a preview for it, but I didn't watch it yet. So yeah. So did you, you I think out of all people have to watch it. It's, it's mind boggling. Okay. Obviously this is on the very extreme, very extreme, really extreme religious cult end, but they right. were a, a very extreme religious group. But these women and these children who were in this group had no access to the outside world and their belief system was so indoctrinated and so ingrained in this group that they thought this leader was even godlike who could hear their thoughts 
they were married off at 14, 15 years old, having babies, thinking that's what is supposed to happen. If they have any type of autonomy thinking whatsoever, if they weren't beaten, they they didn't have cages that were keeping them in the group, but at the mental aspect of the psychology and and the, the way that they thought, the things that they were told is really what kept them there because they could have walked away at any time. But they thought, if I leave, if I do anything else, that I'm going to be eradicated from God. I'm going to go to hell. And that was bigger. That was enough to keep them in this abusive cycle, in this abusive situation. And when all of this finally came out and the the legal aspects of everything started coming down on the group and the leader was imprisoned and sentenced for underage trafficking, essentially, there's still people that are within the group that have not left. Even though all of this stuff came out, they still look at him as their leader and that he is a sign from God. So I love that we're talking about religious trauma because it is a real thing. I have a lot of clients that come to me that struggle. They want to they want to get in touch with their spirituality and they want a reading from me. But then they're afraid, well, tarot, I, I heard it was evil. Like, listen, it's just a tool. Just like when you pray, it's a tool. Tarot is the same thing. It's not from hell. We're not 16th century thinking. I'm not a witch who's going to be burned at the stake. But that mindset is so indoctrinated in them. So I'm so glad that you talked about this. How does trauma show up for someone? So when somebody has trauma, what does that look like? How does that manifest in the body? Obviously, we can kind of speak in a general sense because religious trauma can kind of present in a couple of different ways. But when we look at trauma, I mean, we can't neglect the fact that this does show up in our body. And I think the greatest travesty we've ever done is sever the mind and the body where we created practitioners that only focused on the body. We have to have specializations. But basically, because this physical profession radically developed and the mental health profession was like way later, there is still to this day a severing of the mind and the body and way deficits in collaboration and people like neglecting mental health professionals as like real actual professionals that are extremely learned in their in their field. And it's that thing where I sit there and I go, your body manifest like real psychological connections. Okay. We have stress, which we know changes the hormone like structure of our body. I actually try to explain to people, stress is not some enigma that's like floating above you. It's in your body. It is in your body, changing your body, changing your heart rate, changing your hormone fluctuation, changing like your uh, your respiration, like all of these things are happening, like your dilated pupils, everything's changing. Okay. We have the nervous system for a reason. And that is your body. There is a circuit system in your body that responds to psychology. Okay. So when people say, oh, it's psychological pain. Yeah, that's in your body. Yeah, it's, it's it's real pain in your body. It's real expression of psychology systems in your body. So when I look at trauma, of course it's going to show in your body. Of course it's going to show in your body. I was just talking to a client about, I'm always like, oh, we need better healthcare in this country, whatever. But one of the things that I was joking about was like, I'm amazed that like massage therapy is not covered, but like chiropractic care is. And I know that obviously back pain is a big deal. But massage is so healing and so powerful. 
And it actually can elicit a lot of movement in our body and the energy that we hold. And I was joking because when I get really stressed out, I actually get like kind of almost like a frozen, not like a frozen shoulder, but like kind of like a frozen, I know you guys can't see me, but I'm like holding my neck and like my shoulder. It is like base, I could just say frozen shoulder, but it's like in my neck and my shoulder. And so when I get really, really stressed out, I literally can't move my neck. Like I can't, change the angle of my chin. And I've gone to chiropractic and they're like, this is too tight. I'm scared you're going to get injured, you know? And the thing that helps is massage. Okay. So massaging the movement, moving the energy through, getting the releasing of the muscles. And obviously this is a twofold system. It's in my body, but it's also getting manifested from my psychological pain, right? Mm -hmm. So from, from two, two systems are going at play. I'm getting muscle rigidity and I'm feeding that muscle rigidity from my stress level, from my psychological pain, right? And so when we look at where does trauma come up, I can't even tell you where it's going to show up in your body because for so many people, it's so many different areas. We get the gut problems. We get the IBS. We get the we get all of the irritable symptoms in your bowels because there's a brain in your gut. Like, I hope people know that. We have a lot of that like upper body. Like, so we have the neck, we have the chest, we have the shoulders, right? I have, I hear a lot of this. So the most common that I hear is gut, upper chest, like the respiratory area and the shoulder area. And then I hear the back and I go, I want, I wonder why, because first of all, we have a gut, a brain that's connected, like literally all of these like serotonin and dopamine things are going on in the gut. And then we have the nervous system. That's like, moving through the back and like into our system basically here is where it translates into the and I go guys it's in our bodies right Mm so when we're looking for trauma you can absolutely first start looking in your body because it's gonna most likely show up in your body whether or not you want to be aware of that is on you I'm not trying to be a jerk here but like genuinely it's on you I have so many people that are like I don't know like every time I every time I go on a date I like have to run to the bathroom And they're like, I think I'm like allergic. I'm like, maybe you're allergic to something. Or maybe whenever you're anxious, your bowels literally like, like, you know what I mean? And nobody wants to talk about that because it's not glamorous, but it's real. It's real. And it happens to thousands, if not millions of people every single day. Right? I don't even want to say thousands. It probably happens to millions of people every day. Okay. So like, it's that concept of, are we going to be aware of it? And this is where I mean by like trauma and self-awareness and acknowledgement of your pain is that you can sit there and say, oh, no, it's probably just like dairy or something weird or I need to like eliminate. I'm like, you can do that. I'm not trying to negate that or invalidate that. But the second you realize it's not related to anything that's like outside of your body and it's literally going on inside of your body, it's now your choice to whether or not you want to link that. You know, do you link the neck pain to psychological stress? Do you link the gut issues to that? I don't know. But if you don't, you're already up. That's an uphill battle already. It's an uphill battle already because what you're going to do is you're going to go to the medical doctors and the doctors are going to be like, oh, this might be psychological. And what do you think? Oh, then it's not real. Screw that. Like that is not like that is literally not reality. It is your reality is the psychological system is informing your body to switch things up. And your body is now physically responding. So that is absolutely one of the ways trauma shows up. But also now we're in the like non- physical representation. We have two different ways it's going to show up in the physical representation. But then we also have the mental representation, which is 
sensitivity, wounds, where you're all of a sudden super emotional when someone says something to you. No, thank you. know, Like, oh, you know, I really, you know, I really appreciate you. And then you get rejected. Immediate tears. We have cues. I ask people all the time, I go, why is your emotions at like a nine right now and not like a two? Okay, so you got rejected from that job, okay? And I work with a bunch of people, right? And people get rejected from jobs all the time. And when I tell you there are people that will have almost no emotional response, sometimes I get curious about that because I'm like, "Mm, that could also be a trauma. (laughs) But it's like, if they're like, "Mm, it's just another day, I'll go in another job, okay? So your emotions are probably like at a two on that, right? But then I have people that are, possibly not going to get the job. They don't even know if they got the job or not. And they're on the session with me and they're literally breaking down. And absolutely, I'm not going to do that in the moment. Like I'm not going to invalidate that in the moment. It's absolutely real for them. But my curiosity comes from something about this is linked to your identity. This is a trauma response that I'm seeing because if you're at a nine right now and you're like bordering panic Mm -hmm. because someone could reject you, Now I'm curious about the wound behind rejection. Now I'm curious about the trauma of rejection. Now I'm curious about how you were related to and how you felt your worth came from productivity, your success, your grades, whatever like a job represents, right? Your financial security, whatever that is. If you think that's at risk, you're going to panic, right? And I go, "Mm, we have to pay attention to that because that's where I see the trauma coming up, right? And then, you know, I actually spoke to the idea of like, if it's extremely low emotion, this is why, you know, long-term care with someone who knows you really well helps you. Because if I saw someone that like constantly didn't have an emotional response, but like also was not processing that information, I would also wonder if that's a response. I'd be Mm -hmm. like, are you, is there some like, are you disconnecting to this Mm -hmm. experience? Like, Like you know what I mean? Like, Exactly. Are you genuinely, and this is why I speak to autonomy so much for people, is I say, is this you choosing? Like, are you choosing to like allow the emotions to flow through you, process it and say, I'm aware, I'm aware it's a rejection and I'm moving forward. And this is my full, like, I'm fully aligned with this feeling. I'm fully aligned with this like process of moving forward. Okay. That, that can be extremely healing. When I see people that are like, nothing matters. It's fine if everyone rejects me and I might as well get rejected like 10 more times, right? Mm, Okay, well, it sounds more like non-processing at that point. It sounds like a, a disconnect, a dissociation with the emotion, right? So we have two two sides of the coin, right? We have the extreme expression of emotion, which is so much more obvious, by the way. I can see it more when it's like a nine, right? But for therapists that are working very closely with the client and they see this pattern of they're going to say it's not a big deal. Oh, my God, that's the that's one of the hardest because I have clients that I've like worked with for a while. And it does take me some time to realize, oh, when you say that's not a big deal, you're not processing that information. You're actually disconnecting, dissociating and and, and actually repressing, if not like fully getting it like oh, I'm never going to touch that. Like I'm going to push it so deep into my subconscious that I'm not going to acknowledge the pain, right? Okay, so both sides of those coins are non-processing and that middle ground is autonomous processing. Like I choose to process this, right? So that's super powerful. But going back to your question, what we really want to focus on is the two different manifestations. We have the physical manifestation of trauma and then we also have 
the mental representation of trauma and both if you're aware I'm not going to I'm not going to like you know mince my words here it is extremely painful to be aware that that's where like how much trauma is showing up in your life and it is extremely painful to actually hold space for that and why I say it's extremely brave for you to call it like it is call it by its name why is that so powerful because if you're like my gut isn't like spastic because of this allergy, it's actually spastic because I'm in emotional distress. Okay, well, that feels scary, right? But it's brave that you actually aligned it to what actually is the informer of that pain, right? That's brave of you because now that's the first step of you moving forward in your pain. So. That's so powerful. Everything that you said, it, you, you gave such a great explanation of that. And one thing that I think of too, and I got some backlash on this at, from a post that I did, but I still stick true to it. If you're aware of your trauma, healing is your responsibility. It is. You are, it's not your responsibility that you were abused. It's not your fault that you were in a toxic situation, but it is your responsibility to choose your healing. No one's going to force you to heal. And that's my perspective on it. If you are in a situation where you know that you need to move forward in some type of way, your parents aren't going to force you to heal. Your spouse isn't going to force you to heal. Your friends aren't going to force you to heal. You have to choose that. You have to make a choice that, okay, I'm going to do something to not be stuck in this place. So it's very brave. I think that when you get to the point where you choose your healing, it is not easy because now you're forced to face shit that maybe you haven't processed for years or, you know, God, for some people, 40, 50 years, you know? And so if you haven't processed your stuff, Facing that is not easy at all. So I love that you said that it's it's something that can be, you know, it, you're very brave for facing that. So for somebody who has gone through trauma, now they're maybe starting to process some of that and that negative self-talk comes up. Maybe some of those people-pleasing tendencies come up. How does somebody start to navigate their healing journey? How do they start to have more positive affirmations? How can they recognize their people-pleasing tendencies? Because mm -hmm. now you're starting to face your shit. So how mm -hmm. does somebody navigate that? So it's interesting. I probably, like, I think we will probably speak to this, but like, because I have my own podcast, I wanted to actually like create an entire episode around this. So I'll try to do my best to try <laughs> to keep this distinct for you. But one of the strategies that I've slowly tried to integrate into my work is, um, it's actually really relevant for my people who are religious minded. Like they actually were formed kind of from a religious foundation. I like to use a religious analogy. It's a little turkey for the people that weren't, but I'm going to use it for now just because of the people who are most likely listening right now. The way I try to explain the process of this journey is we obviously have to have knowledge. Okay. So you actually have to get informed that there is a possibility that your gut might not be an allergy. It could possibly be from psychological stress, right? Okay. If you never got that knowledge, you basically are working on like whatever system got thrown at you, right? So if you're really embedded in the medical system, they, and they never bring up that psychological stress can like cause gut issues. Okay. How the, how the heck do you bring yourself to awareness, right? I mean, you can have, you know, people are like, oh, there's Google, but I'm like, okay, but genuinely I'm, I'm speaking on like huge generalized terms. Like if you do not have knowledge that this, and this is why I'm so passionate about my work and content creation, is this concept of if you are not aware 
that what you are enduring, like in a relationship or in a religion or in a workplace, if you are not aware that that interaction is extremely harmful to your psyche, you're going to normalize it. And normalized trauma is untreated trauma, hands down. There is no chance for you to actually bring yourself to awareness if you say, this is just how I live. This is just my workplace. I don't know what you're talking about. Like, I don't know. You're acting like I need to get a better job, but like, this is just how we work, right? Or this is just my family. Like, this is my family you're talking about. Like, what do you mean there's a problem? And I go, ooh, like immediately I hear, like, there's so much normalization of the interactions that I'm like, ooh, there's some work, but it's okay. Like, I mean, people get there, but knowledge, knowledge is so important. And then we have obviously the intricacies of knowledge. Like, you have to be open to that knowledge, right? If I like, throw something at you and you're like, I don't care, right? You're not going to absorb that knowledge, right? So we have knowledge. So I have, I likely, I'm, I'm guessing many of the people who are listeners of this already are very much established in their knowledge. They most likely have been exposed to many, many factors that have allowed them to be absorbing fully like the content that, you know, is getting thrown at you or your own research. Like, I don't want to negate that. Like, yes, we are both expertises. Like we are both experts in our field, but you are allowed to do research. You are allowed to learn on your own. Like you don't have to always go from like this. Oh, who's the doctorate and who's the, you know, who's the person that has the license and all this stuff. You're allowed to do your own research. We also want you to be like getting good information, right? We don't want it to be like, false information, which is kind of how we get into this like religious issues. But this concept of where do we start? Knowledge. Okay. So if you are already at knowledge and you are at a point where you feel, okay, I'm aware. I'm I'm, I'm now aware that this is happening. That's why I say the next stage after knowledge is awareness because you're like, oh, well, isn't that naturally going to happen? And I go, no, because, and here's the parallel. Here's the analogy. Okay. I explained to people, I don't know, you said there was some religious background, right, Chris? Like you were mm-hmm. saying. Mm-hmm. Okay, so like I, t- I kind of explained to people, I'm like, when we were kids, we get David and Goliath and we get, and I mean, if you're in the Christian, I shouldn't, I shouldn't just say this, but like if you're in the Christian mindset, this is what you're most likely going to throw. Noah's Ark, David and Goliath, like you're going to, and also like if you're in a different religion, you're going to get these like sub stories of like the core concepts of your religion. But I always explain to people, children are just like little mirrors. So they're like, um, I know you're, I'm like, you're just rote. It's rote memory. You don't know. Does Jesus actually love me? You're going to know it eventually when you get to critical thinking. But when you're five, you're not absorbing the full extent of what that means. Right. And so you're getting taught that is knowledge. But are you aware? I am going to fight you on this, not you, but I'm going to fight somebody on this, that until you're reaching critical thinking, you are not aware. You are literally not aware of the psychological constructs that's behind that parable. You don't know. You don't know what they're talking about. He's like, oh, do you see the water and the the woman and the well and the blah, blah, blah. And it's like, do you see that? I'm like, we're talking to seven-year-olds. Like, we are. And I'm being dead serious. Like, because I'm in the psychological realm, I think it's absurd. But many people don't even realize this fact. They're like, yeah, my seven-year-old can, like, do math and stuff. Of course, they're absorbing the psychological constructs of, like, what this Bible story says. And I go, that is such a high-level critical thinking process that it's absurd that you genuinely think they're absorbing the full awareness of that knowledge. Okay. So why I parallel it with that religious construct, because it's going to, you're going to see the parallel go further, but we have knowledge. 
then we have awareness. So now if you take in that knowledge of, oh, my toxic system or this, well, you're not going to call it toxic in the beginning. My, my relationship might have some of these factors that someone says could be harmful, right? Okay. It's your responsibility. Now, do you, do you notice when that happens though? Like, are you actually noticing when they're manipulating you? Are you noticing the low key deception? Are you noticing the triangulation? right? Are you noticing any of that? Because if you're not noticing it, now we're stopped at knowledge. You just know it. You aren't aware that it's happening though. And now your healing journey stops at knowledge. That's Mm -hmm. it. You don't get further than that. Okay. So then once we're at awareness, okay, so now we understand, I think I use the 10 commandments. Okay. We have knowledge of the 10 commandments. Okay. And then we have, you know, thou shall not steal. Okay. And we're aware of like, a couple of different instances when like someone could be like stealing, like overtly stealing, like, oh, like I just saw what you did. Like you just grabbed, you know, my mom's purse or whatever. And you grabbed like a 20 out that's stealing. Okay. You're aware when it happens. It's not like that, that can happen pretty quickly. Right. But then I tell people on the next part of the healing journey is belief that that construct, the, the, the construct of stealing, do you believe that that is like valid. Do you believe that that is something that's worth implementing into your life? Do you think that 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 is like enough of a reason to be like, yeah, like I, I mean, I believe that stealing is wrong, right? Okay, cool. Like that's part of the, that's part of your implementation of that knowledge is you have to believe because if someone tells me like, um, I mean, robbing a bank is stealing, but like me showing up five minutes late isn't. Okay, I'm not going all or nothing. And guys, if you do this, I don't give a shit. Like I don't, I'm, or I don't care. Like I do not care. But now we're working with the all or nothing, right? We're now looking at the autonomy of it. And this is where the autonomy comes in with belief because you are now sitting there saying, well, where's the line in the sand for stealing, huh? Like, is it robbing a bank or is it when I show up 10 minutes late after my lunch break? Mm-hmm. Now we're in the belief stage. You have to form your belief around the knowledge, which is where it's so tricky because people are going to go all or nothing with this belief. They're going to say, well, you either believe stealing is wrong yes. or you don't, you're just a complete like corrupt person and you're going to, you know, whatever. Right. And I go, okay, well, this is the autonomy. This is the good in the gray blend the mentalities, understand your belief systems, we don't have to go back our way. We don't have to go our nothing. We have to form our belief and remain understanding that belief. And then the next step, and I'll get to that in a second. But here's the here's the parallel with healing, okay? <laughs> I'm in a toxic relationship. I'm now understanding there's knowledge. I'm aware when someone's interacting with me in a toxic way. Do I believe, <laughs> do I actually believe what they're doing is wrong though? Or do I say that's normal? At this point, am I now normalizing it? Like, am I, am I going back to, like, am I going backwards, right? Because we already got to the stage of awareness, which is like, okay, maybe it's not normal. But when we're saying, do I believe that what they're doing is wrong? And do I believe that I need to advocate for myself? If both of those answers are no, there it goes, your healing journey stops. Mm-hmm. Because if you're saying, well, I mean, I guess it isn't right what he's doing, but like, like what am I? what am I supposed to do? Like, I I guess like, I don't really, I don't really think it's worth it. I don't really think it's worth talking about. I don't think it's, 
That's your belief. You do not believe, you do not believe that it's worth implementing change, okay? So like whether or not you believe that that person's doing it wrong, if you don't believe that it's worth like genuinely applying to your life, it is not going to lead to healing, okay? So then we have the next stage. And this is why I was saying I was going to do a whole podcast. Maybe you'll get it. If you guys want to see it, you can listen to it later, but you're going to get it here too. So perfect. Um, We have conviction, okay? On the healing journey, we have conviction after belief, okay? So this is where it's tricky. And this is where a lot of the believers would get called hypocrites, right? Because I would be like, let's go with like, oh my God, virginity is a construct, but let's go with purity, okay? So let's go with, oh yeah, like premarital sex is wrong. Knowledge. Awareness. When I see my friends doing it, I'm aware that it's wrong. I'm aware that I could be put in that position. I'm aware that it's still wrong and I'm now believing it's wrong. I'm at belief stage, right? Okay. I believe it's wrong. Conviction is the moment where you're about to have sex and not choose to have sex. (laughs) That's your conviction. That is your moment of call to action. I always tell people the reason why conviction is even in this process is because belief doesn't really call you to action. It's just the passive mental state, right? Oh, I believe that's wrong. Oh, I believe I need to self-advocate. Perfect. That's great. Now we're going into conviction. The second you have the chance, the second you have the chance to be called to a radical action of that belief, now we're at conviction. Okay. So now you're in an action state of whether or not you are going to let that belief show up into the external world. Are you going to apply that? Right. Okay. So now we have conviction. And that's why I just said the next stage, which is application. You're in full application of that belief, conviction, and state of awareness. Everything is getting applied. So this is the full extent of when we get to application, you are now taking every single step and you are fully bringing it out into the external world. Okay. And this is why so much of this work on your healing journey, if you notice, it's most of that is internal in the beginning. Most of it is internal. Almost every stage up until right at the end is internal work. And then once we get to conviction and application, you're convicted. Oh, not going to have sex, right? Or, oh, I am. I'm going to. And then you're like, oh, my God, does my belief mean nothing? Right? Like, you're like, and then you have that whole like self crisis or whatever. But this concept of if we look at that stage, and I, I mean, I use the religious analogy, but if you look at that stage, Why do so many people end at some of those stages at, at, oh, they ended at awareness or, oh, they ended at, you know, um, belief. And why so many of my folks get, they struggle is they get to the point where they're so aware it's painful. They do believe that they deserve more. And when conviction comes, this is the tricky part because they're called to action and they're called to talk to their sister and say, hey, I, we need to have a conversation about boundaries. You know, you live three houses down. I need you to let me know before you're coming into the house. Like I need some privacy. I need us to have a conversation about this. It's important to my autonomy. It's important to the health of our relationship. This is why, and I'm believing so firmly that I need this boundary, that I'm convicted to apply it to my external life. Okay. And so when people say, how do we even do this healing journey? I say, there's so many steps involved. It's not impossible, but you have to genuinely work. And this is why I call it self-work because 
you are genuinely in a fight for your life. And so many people see it as this passive state. They're like, well, I mean, I guess if, you know, Uncle Jerry says a racist joke, racist joke, maybe I'll like not laugh. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, we're not just talking about that. We're talking about like, sounds like your entire family's complicit in racism. Like, you know what I mean? I'm like, I'm like that might be a problem, right? And it's like, I'm just saying, like, it, it sounds like a low-key thing, but genuinely, if we're looking at the thematic elements, this is why it shakes us to our core. Because yes. bringing it back to rela- religion, if you look at, like, I know that I am bisexual. I'm aware of when I neglect Ooh, this is a hard, hard one. I'm aware of when I neglect that authenticity. That's painful. Mm-hmm. Holy crap, that's so painful. I'm aware of when I neglect that authenticity. Then I believe I'm worth it enough to speak my truth. When someone asks, you know, oh, I thought I saw you the other day. Like, you know, I thought, that, like, were you out with a friend? Oh, no, that was a date. I'm convicted that... I believe, like, I, my belief is now founded in the external world. And now I'm in full application mode where I'm showing up to my experience with all of those tools. I love that. I love that. I'm so glad you came on this show because I, I've never heard a conversation like this on other podcasts. And I know, I know that there's people who have gone through this generational trauma even with their religious upbringing, their autonomy, with who they are as a person, their sexual identity. And we've seen a shift now going into 2022 where people are starting to be more accepting. But then we've seen these massive setbacks with the don't ask, don't tell policy in the military. Then you can be, now you can come out, oh, nope, just kidding. If you're out, you're getting kicked out. You know, so we've seen all of these back and forth throughout the years. Speaking of generational trauma, how does somebody stop? How do you say the generational trauma is going to stop with me? Is mm. it is it so simple as, oh, let me just apply these steps? Or do you mm. have to like actively work to say, I'm not going to present this trauma to my child? Like, How do you stay true to yourself, true to some of your upbringings, your belief systems, but then not pass that trauma on to your kid? Because I know for me, you know, my my mom, she's Brazilian and Palestinian, very distinct religious systems, Catholic, Muslim, split down the middle, right? Her mom died when she was super young, then yeah. sent to live with her dad, super Muslim, traditional Palestinian family. So my mom was torn. Her generational trauma onto me was psychological, emotional, and physical abuse, because that is how she grew up, her trauma was then processed onto me because that is, she held on to all that trauma and I was the outlet. For me, I chose to stop with my kid and how I chose to deal with it was to just have and express to her that she can be whoever she wants to be, do whatever she wants to do that's within a healthy perspective and just support her with everything and every choice that she wants to make as long as it's good choices and to help her to understand that she can come to me with anything without being judged. Mm. That was my way. But what do you say to other clients who say, Jamie, I want to stop the generational trauma here. 
where do I start? Actually, this just came up because we did a black sheep episode the other day. And I was like, <laughs> it was it was tough because so I four had, for one, four for one. <laughs> no, but genuine. Well, no, I just did the black sheep, which was this is what came up. It was actually like because I'm such a believer. Like, I mean, you know, if you guys I'm sure Chris is like this, but like, you know, find people that are believers in practical ways that like it actually shows up in your life. Like I'm so I'm not trying to say like I'm so done with like the sterilization of psychology, but like when I say, oh, like improve, you know, like improve yourself and whatever, like you're not going to get it in four minutes. You're not going to get it in 30 seconds on like TikTok or Instagram. Like you're going to get it through like deep connection with yourself and deep connection with like knowledge like this. Like actually, this is why I love podcasts because you can get to spend time really exploring deep constructs that get formed within ourselves and we can like deconstruct them and like hold them and just like look at them with each other. And like, that's so powerful, you know? So when you were talking, it's like, why, why, why do I like to be very real about this conversation is because I can speak to the families that have like almost like a soft, I don't want to say there is no trauma hierarchy. Okay. But it's like softer. Like when there's a um, expression of boundaries, it's not straight up cruelty. It's maybe more passive aggressive. I can understand that's also insidious. So I'm holding space for everybody. Okay. So it's not, there is no trauma hierarchy here. The people that have had the most, most severe, severe, you know, I'm going to cut you off. Right. And then the people that have like the passive, that also is painful. Right. So we have that dynamic, but when we were talking about the black sheep, it was, I looked, I basically like spoke right to the audience and I said, I cannot neglect the fact that there are some cultural family systems. And I say that in a way of sometimes it's religion, but sometimes it's not related to religion when I say cultural, right? There are some cultural family systems that do not actually have space for even an ounce of autonomy. And it actually relates to something we were saying, Carice, earlier. Like, there are some systems out there, okay? Like, the military, there is some flexibility, like, eventually maybe, But when you start in that system, there is no benefit to the system when you're an individual. Mm -hmm. The the system does not benefit from your individualization. Okay. Mm -hmm. So there are some family systems out there that are very, very rigid. And so when I say, hey, here's some family boundaries around the holidays. Um, No, thank you. I'm not going to go to the religious service. That is a non-negotiable. That is, get the hell out of my face, you heathen. I will pray for you. That is that moment. And yes. I'm dead serious. Like, that's why some people are like, I get comments all the time. And I don't want, I want to be sensitive here because I don't like, sometimes on podcasts, people will like generalize like what I'm saying, but I will get comments a lot. And they're like, this doesn't fly in Arab families. This doesn't fly in Mexican families. This doesn't fly in blah, blah, blah families. Try to do this in an Italian family. Right. And they'll throw at me like cultural groups and, and people will like, like the comment, like a mil, like there'll be so many comments like that are like, or so many likes on that comment. And I sit there and I go, who like, I just want to speak to that, that there is a very real system that can be implied in your family. And by the way, this can't be a catch-all because there are absolutely some thriving Middle Eastern families. There are some thriving families that are so psychologically founded that are in Mexico, that are in like all of these other places. Like there are some thriving 
fully formed, fully developed families out there that are beautiful and they do not have this problem. We do not want to neglect the fact that there are some like historically cultural things that are at play here that go through generations and start becoming like a collective dialogue around boundaries, autonomy, individualization, you speaking your truth, right? I, I, I'm, I, I mean, and sometimes these things are lethal and I don't want to be dramatic here. It's just I'm a huge true crime, true crime pos- podcaster person that loves to listen to that stuff. And I like just recently, I just listened to a podcast that someone like literally got contract killed because they weren't the right they weren't the right person for the person to marry it was and this was this decade guys like this happens this happens in united states it happens in other countries there are some family systems that are so rigid that if i look at my dad and say i will not be arranged a marriage and i go find someone that really is someone i love their life is in danger Mm -hmm. So I don't want to neglect that. I get that this is an extreme example, but I genuinely want people to understand this is why it gets really painful when we talk about breaking generational trauma and it gets extremely sensitive. And I am not going to neglect the fact that I am a white woman and I do not have all of these culture. I don't, I don't have every single collective cultural. All I can speak to is my own trauma. And all I can speak to is the cultural competency that I've gained through the years. But that does not make up for the fact that I am not someone that's a person of color. I am not someone that has indoctrinated in other cultural systems. So I am not going to speak that I've lived this, but I want you to hear as someone who's a professional that I absolutely can acknowledge that this is not an easily negotiated thing for many people. Mm -hmm. And for many people, okay, generational trauma healing is to them so tra- like that actual generational trauma okay so like this is why can trauma be traumatized right can healing trauma be traumatizing yes because you're actually severing an identity and individualizing from a group that's so formed as like a societal system okay so that is not that is not to say i believe in going no contact with everybody. I The way I kind of phrase this, okay? <laughs> and this is why many people are like, oh, when you hear a therapist that says, just cut them off and right away, right? I go, well, first of all, we have to like be mindful. The one thing that will get me to say that is like literal like imminent safety issues. <laughs> that is what is gonna get me to say, oh, you're, no, you're, you are actually in danger right now. What you What just came out of their mouth is not, light. It's not like we are not going to pretend that's not a threat. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that is where I will. And I'm going to admit that I will sometimes if it's imminent, because I do one of my specialties is helping people after narcissism. We get some malignancy, we get some like dark triad stuff. Okay. So what I'm saying is, what happens there is every once in a while, a therapist actually might say that only from a place of they're hearing imminent threat. Okay. That is where I'm going to say there's a caveat. But when we hear there isn't an imminent threat, there isn't like safety issues at play here, genuinely, you do need to hold space for nuance. And the way I try to explain it to people is I say, okay, try to picture yourself as pe- as, as, a, as a person, what is it, Brenner or something? It's a psychological, you know, one of those 
one of those people that are like the psychological forefathers or whatever. Um, but it's like the circles, right? We have the circle of like yourself, your family, your home, your job, your, right? And it goes further and further out and like all of the sociological systems that you're in a part of, right? I kind of phrase it like that, that you have certain circles. So you have yourself and your relationship with yourself. We're not going to neglect that. That is such a foundational part. And you need to work on that relationship with the way you dialogue with yourself. Okay. So we have your inner circle. Your innermost circle is just you and your relationship with yourself and the beautiful dynamic that you can establish when you're in a healing journey. Okay. Then we have that next circle. And this is where I tell people, these have to be psychologically safe people. These have to be people that you can dialogue when there's no, there's not threats, there's not manipulation. I hear an emotion. I say, would you like me to sit with this? Do you need help process? What, what, what can I provide? Like what safety can I provide around this expression of emotion? Okay. Those are the psychological safe people. Okay. For many people, they hear that and they go, what? <laughs> like, I'm not allowed to be sad to anybody in my family. Like, I'm not allowed to be angry. I'm not allowed to have an opinion. Like, that's very true for some people. And so many times that becomes like, okay, so do I just go all or nothing? Do I cut those people off? Because they're, I look at them as like my inner circle. But that's why I actually kind of like flip Roth and Brenner. Like, it's not really family. It can be family. But it's not always family. And this is where, you know, um, we like I speak to this and like, you know, I've spoke to this in the past, like, but found family is the psychologically safe people. They're most likely either a friend group, a sibling. They can be parents. They can be family. Absolutely. And they are not always family. All right. So we have the circle within yourself, your identity, your relationship with yourself. Then we have the outer circle right after yourself has to be safe. This is where you're going to grow. This is where you're going to develop healthy relationship dynamics. This is where you're going to thrive. This is where someone's going to look at you and say, I respect your authenticity. I respect your autonomy. And we're going to have an emotionally consensual relationship. I am going to ask you like how we can dialogue. You're going to ask me. We are going to respect each other. Okay. If that is not your family, the way I frame it is we don't have to completely cut them off and say, you don't get to be part of any circle. But I would invite them to say, hey, instead of them being right, like adjacent, right up against, right by you, I would say, invite them to be uh, in one of the circles, but in a way that can honor your authenticity. Sometimes that's not impossible for people, but the way I would frame it is I say, you would create more distance because them being right like uh, right by your authentic self right by your inner circle is actually psychologically harmful to you right so I say if you can have them and you say all right we are going to have a relationship mom I'm understanding that it's healthiest for me to create distance here you don't have to say these exact words but you're thinking this right it's more healthy for me to create distance so instead of me coming over all the time, I'm going to like possibly create more, like we might see each other every once in a while. Okay. That's more of like a outer rim circle, right? Like you're involved. You're not completely like, you're not saying, oh, no contact, 
but you're saying the way we relate is very few and far between. It's respecting my boundaries. I don't see you having the skills to respect my boundaries when I am around you, but I do value maintaining some kind of connection with you. Okay. That it's tricky, but that is a way for you to create gray between the all or nothing black or white thinking. Okay. Because many people get to the point where they're like, yeah, but I went for like Thanksgiving dinner and like, she was just like bashing me and like, did, you know, she ripped apart my partner and she like, she like really, really was just like really, really harmful. And I would look at them and I'd say, well, listen, you have to speak from a place of autonomy. Okay. Because if you know that you are subjecting yourself to emotional pain, maybe it looks like not seeing them once a month. Maybe it looks like having a phone call every once in a while. Maybe the phone call feels like you have more autonomy. Maybe the phone call feels like you can respect your authenticity more, right? This is tricky, but it also comes back to that whole like healing journey thing. Like, do you believe that, I mean, I can subject, believe me, I have to deal with people all the time. Like, and I, I, you know, there's everyone's on different parts of their healing journey. Like I've been there. I've been that toxic person. I've been the person that was like completely neglecting myself, right? Um, but I look at that concept of just because everyone's on a different part of their healing journey does not mean that I have to like go backwards in mine by being subjected to your lack of progress. Right. And so if you're looking at your mom and you're like, well, she said she was going to therapy. So like, maybe I should just, you know, I'm like, okay, that's great. And just because she's going to therapy does not mean she's in the same place of your journey or the same place in the journey as you are. Okay, so like, let's just honor that and acknowledge that like, when she comes at you, and she kind of has some of these old patterns that come up, you have to make a conscientious decision, you literally have to sit there and say, do I go to that Christmas party? Okay. And I always tell people, don't even go all or nothing in that. Maybe you go to the party, but you say, hey, actually, you only can stay for two hours. Mm -hmm. Okay, you can only stay for two hours. That's you respecting yourself. Right. Where I used to hear people be like, oh, no, Jamie, like it was like a whole day thing. And like we just had to kind of like we had to hear and we had to like endure everything. And, you know, sometimes we had to sleep over and like whatever. And I'm like, I hear passivity like I hear they made me. okay, and I say, okay, well, where is your where is your interaction with that? Like, where can you honor? Actually, I'm going to be leaving at 3 p.m. Like, you know, I'm going to eat lunch with you and, you know, we have a prior engagement. We got to go at 3. Okay. It's not I sit there from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. It's boundaries, right? Boundaries are extremely important. I love the way that you broke that down, too, and kind of having that close circle. Maybe somebody's on the outer circle and it's not always easy to just cut somebody off, especially when it's someone like your mom. You know, I've had to do that. I've had to have really, really severe boundaries. And if she chooses to come around, she does. And if she chooses to wallow in her victimness, victimness, I don't even know if that's a word. No, but yeah, no, whatever. If, if, then that's on her. You know, I can't, I, I, I'm not responsible for her healing or her, her own, you know, responsibility with her journey, with her healing trauma. You know, I'm responsible for mine and she needs to be responsible for hers. I literally could talk to you about these subjects all day, (laughs) but I have, I have a tradition on this podcast where I kind of close out and I ask each and every guest, 
if you had to give yourself any piece of advice when you were younger, what would that one piece of advice be? Oh, God, I'm going to cry. <laughs> um, I would say you are so wise and your inner voice is speaking consistently. And listen to that voice, honestly. And this is actually really relevant to like the topic of religious trauma. So when I was like deep in that mindset, very, very indoctrinated at that point, there would be glimmers. There would be literally glimmers where I would absolutely break through. And my voice would be like, it would be like stinging. I always use that word for a reason because it was, it was like a sting. And I'm dead serious. It was like a psychological stinging in my body that like there would be a teaching that they'd present that would be so radical. And my brain would be like, mm, no, like that, like, it like created this like core dissonance, which is where I feel like I'm this firm believer that there's something in us, like so deep within us that does have this true wisdom of where we need to journey towards, like where our journey is leading us, like the healing journey and where we're headed, right? And our natural evolution of like progression of psychological, like psychological summits like where are we headed right and this intrinsic part of us is there so for anyone listening like it is there and when you feel that stinging or when you feel that like like deep embedded dissonance it's not your enemy it's not your enemy because that was the easiest way for me to get it out of my head it was Oh, well, that's, that's an, that's a, oh God, that must be like bad. Right. But when I look back and if I was speaking to my younger, say, I, younger self, I would say, that is, that is your wisdom. That is like a part of your core that is so deep within your brain that is advocating for yourself. And that is the only thing that got me to the point I am today is that I would not allow that voice to be labeled as wrong anymore. And I slowly, I would make a, I, I have made so many mistakes, everyone. Like I, you know, to this day, I will be making, I'm, I'm on a journey. I'm not completed. Right. And so I have made so many mistakes. I have made a lot of relationship mistakes. I've made like things that are like missteps and Every step of the way, I was like trying to like, I was like, ooh, that was bad. Like, I did not do that right. Like, right. But then my voice would be like, hey, you might want to lie, but like your true self wouldn't lie. So like speak truth here. And then I would speak truth. And then I would move in forward or forward in that truth. And slowly what, what like developed was more and more of my authenticity. And that possibly could have happened 10 years earlier if I didn't stifle and dampen and honestly push down, like suppress that voice for so many years. And I would say, yeah, it was probably over a decade that I would just push that voice down. And once I allowed that voice to flow, and that's why I use that terminology, like it's actually flowing. There's no barrier anymore. It's flowing through you. You're saying, I honor you. I honor you. You are wise. You are valid. You journey towards that authentic self. And then you 
become convicted that you're worth it enough to show up to the world as that. I love that. Well, Jamie, you're amazing. Um, I thank you so much for sharing not only your knowledge, but your story because it's so powerful. And I think that there's going to be so many people that get so much out of this. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Yes, thank you so much. I, I appreciate you. Until the next time, see you on the next episode of Diary of an Empath.